0: Thank you for being here this morning. I appreciate your presence very much. We've got a, a large, large crowd. We appreciate everyone being here. been studying the book of Job for a couple of weeks now, and a lot of it had to do with uh, the uh, gentleman that uh, Matt mentioned this morning, and that's uh, Ed. Ed's a friend of mine. Ed's a fellow that uh, he's had a storied past and a long history. He was in foster home for many, many years. He's only known his mother that is now about to pass from this life for about four or five years. And so along with that goes a lot of guilt. Should I've tried to find her sooner? All of this kind of stuff. And he's dealing with all of this as his mother is passing away. And then in August, I ran into a fella named Chad Hymas and. I've actually got a little video of him uh, in the sermon this morning because I wanted you guys to meet him um, that has gone through some of life's trials and tribulations as well. And um, so I began to think about all of that and then my, my mind uh, jumped to the book of Job. And so we're going to talk about Job a little bit this morning and see if there's something that we can learn from that book. Um, and then we'll... Uh, We'll see where it goes from there. So in Job, we find that uh, he had seven sons and three daughters, that he was one of the richest men, the richest men in the East, the Bible says, and he goes on to tell us about all of his possessions. He had all of these animals up here. He had uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 female donkeys, many servants, the Lord said there was none like him on the earth, and He also said, "The Lord said He was blameless and upright man that feared the Lord." And so we know a lot about, or I knew a lot about, probably the first three, maybe four chapters of Job. Right? We've we've heard this story many times about Job, and we've heard the story about his possessions, and we've heard the story that Satan and the Lord start talking, and they talk about this man Job, and 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 the Lord tells him that he's blameless. He's that uh, that he fears the lord and basically tells satan how proud of job that that he is and satan says well sure you're proud of him and sure he does all those things cuz you've protected him look at all the stuff you've given him you know you built a hedge about him you protected him if you let me at him i can change his mind i can get him to where he'll curse you and the lord says go ahead try he does put some limitations on him the first time. He says, don't touch Job, but his possessions, everything that he has on the earth is yours. It's in your hands. Do with it whatever you want. And so we heard. We know the story, right? The Sabaeans steal his oxen and donkeys and kill his servants. Lightning strikes his sheep and his servants there. The Chaldeans stole his camels. They killed his servants there. His sons and daughters are having a party at one of the houses and a great storm comes up and kills his whole family. The only thing Job's got left is his wife, and even she turns on him here in a chapter or two. But what? So what does Job do, right? We, we know the story, right? He falls down and worships the Lord, right? He says, naked I came into this world, naked I'm going to leave, bless the Lord. So Satan didn't get what he wanted. Satan says, well, if you'll let me touch him physically, if you'll let me harm him physically, I'll get him to change his mind about you and so he puts boils or sores on him from head to toe, and at that point he loses the support of his wife. His wife says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? So what does Job do then? Well, he still doesn't sin. He still doesn't do what Satan wanted him to do. So we find the story goes on and he has some friends that come to visit him. So this fellow, this name, uh, and I'll probably get these names wrong, Eliphaz, the Tenomite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They come to visit him. And they come and they don't even recognize Job when they first walk up on him. And they just let out this yell and they start crying because their friend is in such bad shape. They don't even recognize him with all the sores on him. And for seven days and nights, they just sit there and mourn and weep with Job. For seven days and seven nights. And then Job finally talks. And he he uh, he talks, and instead of cursing God as the devil had hoped, he cursed the day he was born. And he ponders this question of, I came into this world quickly. Why can't I leave just as quickly? Why do I have to endure all of this suffering at the end of my life? God, take me quick. Just get it over with. And then his friends start giving him advice. But before we get there, my question is, so if you're one of those three that has come to Job's side, what would your advice be? Having known what he's just gone through, psychologically, what would you start to think? We may think a lot like some of his friends do here in a minute. And we hear that in the world a lot. They start thinking about, Well, something must be wrong in your life. Somehow you've offended God. That's what some of these guys think. We'll get into that. So, you know, you may have lost loved ones. You may have lost some of your possessions. You may have um, had a loved one that's got a painful disease. That's what uh, Ed is going through, my friend. What's your advice to those types of situations? Well, Eliphaz speaks up. Finally, after seven days and seven nights, he says you must be suffering because you've got sin in your life. You've done something that offends God. In Job chapter 4 and verse number 7, he says, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So, as you'll find with these guys, it's like with friends like these who needs enemies, because they they come at Job pretty hard. He says, you've got sin in your life. And based on my experience, those that plow through with sin and iniquities, they reap the same. And that's what's going on with you, Job. And I've heard people give advice like that when people are going through bad times. They say, well, you must have sinned. You must have done something. And this is is God punishing you for those bad things. I've heard that type of advice given. He backs it up with a vision and some of his own logic. He exhorts Job to patience and submission. He says, you know, if you'll just... If you'll just uh, repent of all of this stuff, you'll live a happy and mature and comfortable old life. And then in Job 5, he said, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of God. So again, he says, this is God correcting you, chastening you, fixing you for these sins that you've committed. But we all know that's not true, right? Remember chapter 1. This is a guy that was blameless in the sight of God, right? He, he was living the right life. This is not, uh, this, so these friends are giving him bad advice. And Job answers and he says, you know, he, he says, I'm justified by the things that I am suffering. If anybody else came and with a clear conscience analyzed this suffering that I've been going through, they would tell you that it's unfair. They would tell you that it's heavier than the sands of the sea, that nobody should have to bear this type of suffering that I'm going through. That's what Job tells them. He felt like he had become a burden to God. So there in the chapter, it talks about the fact that he believes God has made a mark of him like you would mark an enemy, right? And he says, the arrows that God is throwing are coming at me and my family. He thinks God has marked him an enemy. Not that he's chastening him and trying to correct him and with love as, as these guys are saying, but he says, no, I have fallen completely out of favor with God. He's marking me as an enemy, and he's shooting arrows into me. He challenges his friend to quit talking in generality. So he said, you know, these guys are talking about sin and all of this stuff. And he goes, hey, tell me what sin? What sin have I done? Quit talking on all these generalities and tell me, where have I sinned? What have I done that's wrong? Speak to me in specifics. And he insists that this is no way for a friend to console a friend, which I'd agree with. Right? This is no way for one person, one friend to teach another. Then Bildad builds on that. He said, You've got, you're you a hypocrite, Job. You're not, you're not walking your talk. You go around talking about being this great guy, this great man of God, but you're not walking that talk. You're a hypocrite. He says, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them to the hand of the transgression. So he said, your children got what they deserved. They had sin in their lives and they deserved to get killed. Pretty stout. If you will seek God and plead the Almighty for mercy, you stand. You can and stand upright. He said, "He'll restore all of these things to you." And Job tells him. He says, uh, "God's justice." Uh, he acknowledged that God is justice and that man is sinful. <clears throat> he celebrates the, that God, God's power there in that chapter, and he maintained that God afflicts the innocent as well as the uh, as well as the wicked. And he does that without respect to their works. So he said, "God doesn't doesn't. He's fair. He's just in everything that he does." His friend Zophar piles on. I'm going through this quickly. Job. uh, He says, "Job, uh, you have to be a wicked man. You have this secret sin. You must have a secret sin. There's something that's hidden that we don't know about." He also says, "You're really getting less." than you deserve. You deserve to be punished even more. I don't know what else I could have done to Job, but he says you're getting less than you're deserved for these secret sins and all this sin that's going on in your life. And he warns Job against this vanity of mind, this thinking that you're so smart and you're so intelligent and that you're smarter than everything that's going on. And Job answers Zophar. He defends those accusations. He says you guys are perverting the truth. He threatens them with God's judgment. And he begs for a break in the suffering. And he expresses a strong confidence in God. Now for the next 30 chapters, some odd chapters, this kind of rhetoric goes back and forth back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's a book of poetry, so sometimes it's hard to read exactly what they're talking about. They don't speak the way we spoke, and it's in kind of poetic language. But these three guys are just telling Job how he sinned, and he's telling them how he hadn't, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now, the interesting thing is that no one person through this whole thing is right. Job's wrong in his and some of the stuff he's saying, these, uh, these three guys are wrong in some of the things they say. saying. In chapter 38, the Lord appears out of a whirlwind and he challenges Job to start answering a bunch of different questions. Questions about the creation. Where were you when I formed the earth? Tell me how it was formed. He starts talking about him in the next chapter. He starts talking about a bunch of different animals that Job didn't even know who those animals were, and he says, "You don't know how they, what these animals are, much less how to tame them and control them." So, who are you, Job? In verse uh, in the next uh, in the next chapter, he says, um, <clears throat> or in the next chapter, then Job starts answering God, and he answers him, and he basically realizes that God's right. That I don't have any. Any place to stand on, so he humbles himself, and he talks, uh, and he answers the Lord. I think in the forty chapter forty one, that's where they talk about yeah, Le- Leviathan. So the Leviathan is this this huge creature. Sounds like it might have lived in the ocean. I don't know for sure. It says it talks about scales, and he goes through this whole chapter talking about this prehistoric Leviathan that uh, that existed. And he said, Job, can you control that? Can you? tame leviathan do you even know what it was could you have created it and again pointing out that god is god and that job um really kind of overstepped his bounds in uh challenging god that way so the story ends in chapter 42 job humbles himself before god and god accepts him he censors the three friends he says after the lord has spoken these words to job the lord said to eliphaz the my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So he asks those guys to go and to prepare a sacrifice, and he asks Job to offer that sacrifice to him for their misgivings. And in, Job's, in, the, uh, in, in the end, Job's affluence becomes double what it was. So all the stuff's returned to Job at the end of the book, and, and in fact, most of it's doubled. So he had twice as much wealth as he had before. He had a whole new family. He lives another 140 years after this event happens, in uh, after the event is over, in uh, verse 42. So think about the friends for a minute, because, you know, they weren't all wrong. What were some of the things the friends did that were right? What did they do that was right? Well, they came, right? So the first thing is they came to Job, right? That's that's at least something. They saw their friend was in need. They saw their friend was hurting, and they came. They spent seven days and seven nights with him. They mourned with him. So something we can learn from them is that, you know, our physical presence when other people are hurting is important. Whether they're hurting physically or spiritually or Mentally or how, whatever's going on in their life when they're hurting, our physical presence with them is important. So what can we learn? First of all, don't assume that people's troubles are a direct reflection of their relationship or judgment of God on their behavior. And realize that God may be testing us as a means of his sovereign plan. I think it talks about that in of John chapter 9, verse number 1. It says, as he passed by, so this is a New Testament example of a similar story. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So think back to the story of Job for a minute. Think back to the overarching story right what was what was the reason that job was challenged well it was sort of to prove his faith right it was to build him up stronger than he was before and in the end he is stronger than he was before in the end he's got twice as many possessions and he's got a better understanding from god of god right? All, those, all that chapter, all that 30-something chapters, as he kind of understood God, but maybe had a little misunderstanding of God, at the end, he's got a very clear picture that God is God, God is almighty, and um, he's got a plan, and I don't need to understand it all. God is in control. That's what he learns from this whole thing. And so he ends up being stronger than he was before. So we've got to encourage people to endure faithful. Faithfully through these things, and let them know that God sees our pain, so God understands it. It's worthy to pray to Him. So um, the next, uh, I got a, a video I, I want to uh, play for you. And again, it's this uh, man named Chad. <clears throat> a little, uh, a little uh, kind of front end information on Chad. Chad uh, lives in uh, Utah, I believe. Chad uh, started a business. He started a landscape business. He started it all by himself. Uh, One person turned it into, built it to a a 50-man organization. He and his wife, Shondell, had had a lifelong dream of owning an elk ranch in Utah and raising elk. And they had purchased 3,500 acres and some elk and they were raising, uh, they were raising uh, elk. And he talks a a little bit about this. He's got two, uh, two young boys at the time. Uh, Now those boys are uh, about to go off to college uh, on basketball scholarships. So um, this happened, this incident happened to him about 12 12 or 13 years ago. So um, I'll introduce you and let let Chad kind of tell you his story.
1: Have you ever ever felt unstoppable? I mean, or or felt like everything just seems to be going so great uh, and... uh, Every aspect of your life, spirituality, uh, your your health, physically, you're doing well. Um, family life is just just can't get any better. Um, I that's I, I was I was on top of the world. Work, we were as busy as we would ever been. I mean, I'd grown my company from one person myself to fifty two employees, and we were busy. We were just hammered so much that I would work, you know, 15, 16 hour days. That way, which in my mind was great. Um, everything was going couldn't have gone better couldn't have gone better and building the dream of the elk ranch shanda and i had talked serious about that during the first couple years of our marriage and we were we were building this dream out here that we had loved so much and i don't know if any of you ever felt like that before or if if you have felt like that before but when things seem to be going so well you know what happens next the challenge comes I arrived at the hospital. Uh, I remember all that. I was life-flighted to, to the hospital. I remember, remember them talking to me in the helicopter. I remember the nurses that were there to receive me as I, as I got there. And they got me in quick, and they asked me to count backwards from 8, and I went right to sleep. And I woke up uh, a couple weeks later, and my father was there when I woke up. Uh, my father was there intentionally. He had asked my wife permission to be there. And when I woke up, My father is the one that wanted to give the news to me. My dad had the courage to do it because my dad was my greatest weakness. That's pride. And he knows that when I get news like this, being as active as I was before, I would probably want to die and turn away from my family. And my dad simply just gave me the news. And that was that uh, they weren't able to reattach the spinal cord. And I would have no function of my legs, my midsection, my stomach, two out of my three chest muscles. I lost my fingers and my hands, and I lost most of the strength to use in my arms. And then my dad said, Now, what if you could be a better husband and a better father, and a better contributor to society with no hands and no legs than you were before? So I was asked once if I I could go back and change what happened to me the night of my accident. And the answer is simple, but my answer is this. I would never change what happened to me that night. Some people might think I'm crazy, and I'm all right with that. I think you would echo with me when I say that I thank God that you and I go through the challenges and the processes of life. Because through that, through that, that those challenges and through that pain, the most amazing thing happens. You and I discover our potential.
0: So Chad got the call from his wife um, one night that... Um that uh his i think the story as the story goes his uh youngest child was taking its first steps and so he was in a hurry to get home and so he had to stop by and feed the elk and he uh he stopped by and he had a tractor that the hydraulics weren't working on exactly right and uh they fed what we call square bales of hay and i'm not talking about the 60 pound bales but the the 2000 pound bales and uh he was lifting a, it, it, I think the story is he was lifting the hay bale up and over a fence to drop it into the pasture over the fence for the elk to eat. And the hydraulics failed, and the bale rolled back down on top of him on the tractor, and, and that was the result. So he went from being this active guy to spending an hour under a 2,000-pound hay bale, and ultimately his uh, spinal cord was was severed. His wife found him. Shondell found him. And... Um, she couldn't do anything. That you know, they're in the middle of Utah. There's no cell phone coverage, so she has to leave him at the tractor. She's got the kids in the car. Uh, has to go back to the ranch house and call on the landline. Wait for the ambulance to get there. Uh, eight of his uh, four, two farmers and some paramedics. Eight people lifted the 2,000 pound bale of hay up and off of the tractor, uh, so that the paramedics could get to him and he was flighted, And then he then the story picked up. I, I cut out some stuff there just because. It's a, it's a pretty long video. But the interesting thing about Chad, and you heard it at the end, was he said, Hey, uh, you know, people ask me all the time is, if I could change something, would I? And he said he wouldn't. Because um, he took his dad's challenge, and his dad's challenge was what? His dad's challenge was hey, this is a trial and this is a tribulation, but there's something that's better. Can you be a better husband? Can you be a better father? Can you be a better leader? At 33 or 35 years old, he was the youngest to be inducted in the Speaker Hall of Fame. He travels internationally speaking to people and telling them about something that's better. He's primarily on the safety circuit. That's where I ran into him. But his message is very biblical. His, very, his message is very similar to what Job went through, right? He, he, was, afflicted, uh, he was afflicted physically. He couldn't walk anymore. And again, you have to make those choices when those trials and tribulations come up. So I wanted you to um, to, to uh, see Chad and to understand Chad because there are some difficult facts. And one of them is that becoming a child of God doesn't make us immune to life's trials and tribulations. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're going to face those. We're going to run into them. We're all going to die. So at some point, as Chad was talking there, he said... Hey, when everything's going great, then the challenges come. Some of us will die quickly. Some of us may go through a prolonged battle with cancer. Some of us may, you know, we don't know how we're going to die, but we're going to die. We're going to face that trial, that tribulation. All of us are going to face something. Most of us will face, if we live long enough, the loss of our parents and the loss of friends and loved ones. We're all going to face it. And the question is, how are we going to face it? Are we going to face it like um, Chad and Job and we're we going to face it biblically or are we going to face it and turn away from it? The second thing to know is that God's love for us doesn't equal, does not equal comfortable and easy. That's not what's promised to us. He is. He does promise that the Christian life is a better life to live and it is. Because there are consequences for sin on this earth. and if you're living the Christian life, you're supposed to be sinning less, therefore less consequences. But then the beautiful thing is that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, right? So at the end, whatever happens here, it's going to work out for good. <clears throat> so when you think about the Bible, what the Bible says about it, I think about First Peter chapter one and verse number six. It says, "I know the thought I know the thought of this is exciting even if you must suffer through a different kind of tru- uh, different kinds of troubles for a short time these troubles test your faith and prove that it is pure and such faith is worth far more than gold gold can be proved to be pure by fire but gold will ruin when your faith is proven to be pure the results will be praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ comes so when you think about gold when you think about gold, when you heat it up to the point that it becomes molten, as it's being poured out there into a, a uh, into a brick, into a mold to make a brick. When you think about gold, they heat it up to the point that it's molten, and what happens? The impurities rise to the top, and they skim those impurities off. And then they heat it, and it boils, and the bubbles, and the impurities, and they skim it off. And he equates that to us in our trials and our tribulations. He says, "You've got faith." And that faith is being boiled in the vat like gold. And these trials and tribulations that you face bubble to the top and we skim those away. And what happens is faith is left purer and stronger. So when you think about Job and you think about everything that he went through and you think about all those trials and tribulations, all that got skimmed off the top and you ended up with a man that was stronger at the end, that was closer to God at the end maybe than he was at the beginning. That's what... The Bible here is talking about. It's talking about a purification of our faith. If you went through life and never faced anything, ne- nothing ever bad ever happened to you. What? How would you, how would your faith to God be tested? How would you? How would it be proven? That's a unique thought. It's kind of the opposite way to say. Well, what would you would uh, that was exactly the way he set it up in the beginning, right? He set up a Garden of Eden. He set up a Garden of Eden where you didn't have to have faith because God walked with them. You didn't have to have faith in God. There was no sin. There was no death. There was no pain. There was nothing. It was perfect. That's the way he set it up. And you didn't have to have faith because you got to walk with him every day in the the coolness of the evening. But then we sinned. We made some choices. We ate the fruit. And all of this bad stuff came in. And he said, well, now you're going to have to have faith that I'm going to save you in the end because you're removed from the garden. I can't look at sin. It's got to be it's got to be separated from me. You guys chose sin. That's got to be separated. But if you have faith in my plan, if you have faith that no matter what's going on, that all of these trials and these tribulations are small in comparison, that you can set your affections on things that are above, if you can realize that what happens here on this earth is a fleeting moment and all but a second, a millisecond, it's zero in comparison to eternity and infinity and where you're going to spend with Him. If you can get your mind right around all the things that we're going through here on this earth to realize that they're nothing that if you'll have faith in me, if you'll trust in me. One last thing, in Romans chapter 8, and verse number 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So it comes down to a question of trust and a question of faith. Do you trust this verse? Do you trust the fact that God gave His Son and allowed Him to be hung up on the cross, allowed Him to die for you? Do you trust that if He would do that for you, that He wouldn't hold anything else back? That His promises are real and that heaven is real and that where we're going as Christians is real and that what we ever, whatever we go through on this earth is but a fleeting moment and is incomparable, if that's a word not able to compare to the things that we're going to have as Christians in heaven. So that's the story in my mind of Job. Job went through a lot of things, but when we compare that and we think about the New Testament example, what that should teach us is, and I think Job maintained it through the whole story. He trusted God through the whole story. He trusted God to the very end. Yeah, he kind of maybe called God out on some things he shouldn't have done, But he never thought God didn't exist. He never thought God wasn't able to save. He never thought God was something that he wasn't. But he trusted God all the way to the end. And so for us, that's what it boils down to. When we face these trials and these tribulations, it's like the boiling bat of gold and skimming the imperfections off of the top. That's what trials and tribulations are. That's the way we need to look at those things. They're but for a moment... And all they're doing is making us stronger, making us look more to Christ. Does one or the other either makes you look more to Christ or it it, it will kill your faith completely. You'll curse God and die, as his wife asked him to do in, in the end there in the chapter two of Job. You'll do one of the other. You'll either turn completely against God or it'll make you stronger. And the question is, which does it do for you? What are these trials and tribulations? Do you trust God this morning as we stand and sing?